Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. 2,000 years ago, his words came to pass. AD 70, Jerusalem surrounded by armies. The temple destroyed. Sacrifices ceased. The end of the age. So where are we at on the prophetic timeline of history? Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And that we have been made kings and priests to reign here on earth. The Revelation Red Pill, the kingdom of God is now. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Hey guys, welcome back to Revelation Red Pill Wednesdays. We're your hosts, Leah and Michelle. We are so excited about Woo! tonight. This Bye, has been an absolutely on fire series. We are in week seven. Can you believe we're in week seven? No. Woo! Been so awesome. I ha I look forward to these nights. Like all week My long. Favorite. I cannot wait to get like it used to be the Friday show and then it was the Sunday show. And now it's like I cannot wait to get to the Wednesday show. I absolutely love Revelation Red Pill Wednesdays. And Leah and I hope that you guys do too. And we know that you do because your feedback has been amazing. Now, over the past several weeks, we have been taking many different deep dives. We did in week one, we did kind of an overview. Yeah. We've had Joy and Matt Thayer on to kind of talk about the, you know, when you open up a, a book, you get, um, not the thesaurus, but, um, the, well, no, not the appendix. The directory? No, not the directory. Just keep going. Oh my gosh. You all, you're going to put it in the Table chat. Table of contents. Not, no, it's in the back. So like, that's what, the appendix. No, not, maybe it is the appendix. What do these things mean? And that's what Joy and, and Matt Thayer have been bringing to us when they come on the show of Sparrow Pictures. Like, okay, so imagery, what, what's the context here? What would the readers have been thinking when they read it 2,000 years ago based on their world view and experience? Yeah, so yeah, uh, Matt and Joy Thayer of Sparrow Pictures, S-P-E-R-O, Go check out their Rumble channel. They've been breaking uh, down the Book of Revelation. segments. Yeah, so they've got um, the Seven Seals. What? How? I think they've got uh, the Blood Moons, different things like that. So check them out. And also, on Mondays, the Kingdom Round Tori and Surgeon Jason so are good. applying mm -hmm. all the things that we're learning. See. Eventually, hopefully, once we have wiped away the idea of doom and gloom and we're headed on to victory. Bye-bye, doom and gloom. Then we won't have to go back to go forward. We won't have to erase the false uh, theology. We can just move forward with the victory Come theology. On. I like it. Okay. But until then, a lot of us need, in our red-pilling moments, we need facts to back them up. To show us that, yes, the kingdom of God is ours. I got Psalm up. Psalm 2, uh, 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. Come on, man. As Corey Gray likes to say, we inherit the planet. The planet. <laughs> so this week, I have been praying about this. And I really want you guys to be with me in the chat. Come on. And I want you to do me a favor. Because this episode, 
I'm going to finish my I'm sorry. I started, I was singing in my head. I see. Did you see how I held it back? <laughs> I held back the like singing. A, I was going like to say, come it. on over. No, that's fine. Sorry. It's like a toot. <laughs> She's like, I held it in. I did. Now that you brought it out. Now that you brought it out. I had to let it out. Um, I'm a little giddy. Come I'm on excited over. excited today. Be in the chat with me because I'm going to tell you guys something. Today's episode mm -mm. is my Revelation Red Pill Ooh, that I got this week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but wait, 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 wait. It was, it's built on a foundation of something that you already had. You just got I more was missing a piece. It. I was missing a piece. Here's the thing. Um, usually when you're red pill on something, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen. You're... It's kind of like when people come to know Jesus, sometimes you can introduce somebody to Jesus and they accept him on the spot. And sometimes, like I was listening to a rabbi, it took four years of somebody in a, in like a YouTube chat. Yeah. Going back and forth. Sometimes it takes some time. So Corey had asked Michelle and I to come on his show and, and, and give us, you know, what is your t red pill testimony? When did you first re recognize that this isn't the end of the world, the doom and gloom um, outlook isn't right? And I was like, well... I can't tell you that because my mom has always been one of hope right. and taught us Christianity from a, a position of hope. So no matter how much John Heggie I watched, no matter how much TBN I watched, I picked up and I just allowed the things of hope to, to, to seed in me. God did that. So even if Jesus is coming back in my lifetime, it was going to be a good thing. I never really paid attention to what the, you know, the tribulation it never scared me because oh, I'm going to be raptured, right? <laughs> um, but at some point, it switched over to recognize that those who were believing in this end times theology were giving up, letting the devil have place. And I had to research where it came from. Red. And now they've knocked over the... So we have a dog here that's tormenting the chickens. Do not torment the chickens. They hey, Red, Red, Red. Come here, buddy. And then they knocked over the chicken water. They're chirping. And uh, they're chirping because he's there. And then he's <laughs> more interested because they're chirping. Okay, so my revelation red pill tonight is going to... You're going to go on a journey with me. And I have talked to... Um, Corey and Serge about this and I've talked to, to Joy and Matt and when it comes to Israel and it comes to the Middle East and it comes to Zionism that's what we're going to talk about tonight how did how did see I, I understood the connections with Schofield and Darby and we're going to get to these people you're going to learn who they are in a minute Schofield reference Bible I understood all of that and I had written a blog on it. You guys can find that. It's Revelation Red Pill Episode 8. And if you look at the Brideon playlist. Oh, here's the so, thing. The website's back up. So that's all back up. The website is back up, but it's three weeks old. Mm -hmm. But that part is there on the Revelation Red Pill Academy Wednesdays. Right. So you've got, it, it's, it's Episode 8 on the Revelation Red Pill Academy. The first one we did in 2020. And it says Margaret McDonald... I can pull Irving. it up so you guys can see it. Yeah, it's it's great. Bring that up, please. Yeah, I've got two different windows here. I'm working with a lot today because there's a lot to cover. <laughs> Mine isn't even up. Shoot, I don't, know where, I don't know what happened to that. 
Hey, you, Red, um, Red, stop. stop. Oh my goodness, this little stinker. Leah, just get it out. We're, we're a little bit sidetracked here today. I could put him upstairs. I'm just going to start reading. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to start reading because it's... I, I found somebody who put into words what I was trying to say. And I am going to have this up on a blog, but Michelle can put this in the chat in a minute. All these links are going to be up at the end of the show. I'm going to have a, a blog for you guys that you can go and at least get my notes and you cannot spell check me. So here we are on the website with Revelation Red Pill Wednesday. This is work. This works right now. Okay. This is this, this you can get to. So all of the uh, red pills, well, it just goes to show you how far we are behind here. Mm -hmm. um, but if you keep scrolling down here to episode eight, hang on, we're gonna, uh, there we are. So see how it says follow along with the blog here? Just click on that and it'll take you right where you want to go. So boom, this is the blog that Leah was referring to. Um, that you're kind of, the, this is this blog right here is the foundation of today's show mm -hmm. that has now been added to, right? Yeah. So yeah. I'm really, I'm especially excited about this. Do you remember when uh, we had on David Sorensen and I, I thought we were going to go here and we didn't, but I said, this is the most anticipated episode of, of Revelation Red Pill yet. Even last week, you went um, a little bit before all of this, some kind of new stuff for me personally and added to this tonight is what I'm really, really excited about you guys seeing and understanding because once you know the nefariousness and all of the details of where this all came from and then adding to that this new revelation that Leah's just gotten with the Zionism thing, which I know a lot of you guys it's are going to It's not, it, no, 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 stop, 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 sorry. All of that, wipe it. Okay, we're not going there. No, we're, we're not doing my favorite thing tonight. We are doing that, but that's not the foundation of it. That's not how it goes. Okay. That is not how it goes. Okay. Oh, wrong one there. There nope, wrong one. Wait, are a lot of really good, well-meaning people. There are some crooks in this. There are There crooks. are some people who went down a bad path. Okay. But by and large, this is good people who love God, who got on the wrong path. Let me say that one more time. I'm actually, I've been shaking, trying to, trying to, how am I going to do this? Because we, there is a lot of idiotic, stupid, Jew-hating people out there. Come on. And when you recognize that the modern end-time theology plays into, actually, a... Almost, you don't recognize that there's a hatred there to unconverted Jews that's born out of a love for unconverted Jews. The modern end times theology, and we're going to get a little bit into this, started out in, in England and in, and in Britain, and it kind of spread, and it spread to America. Puritans basically started to read the Bible and they started to read the Old Testament and it had never really been illuminated to them before. And some began to see something that the early church fathers, that the Catholic church 
Um, anybody from Irenaeus, Eusebius, Augustine, Luther, none of them saw. What they thought they saw, some of them, not all of them, was kind of a, a special hand of God leading the Jewish people back to Israel. Because you can misinterpret the Old Testament prophecies that way. That when you start to read, I will redeem Israel. I will, you know, make your land a flourishing land. They came up with this kind of ideology and, and theory. And this theory began to be developed over time. And it wasn't just one guy in his basement coming up with something. Okay. But right now today, and as I was, as I was driving to my car, when, um, and I look at like Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and the Palestinians, and there's so much hate and there's so much violence. And I'm like, I am not on their side. Like, I can't, I am, I, 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 but what about Israel? Should it have been created? Should Jews go back to their homeland? My heart, the reason this is so hard for me is that I have a heart for Jews too. I want them to have what God wants for them. And God said, Leah, I didn't promise them the land of Israel. I promised them the whole earth. We are putting their promises in a box. Come on. You know what it reminds me of is putting the Native Americans on reservations. Exactly. Exactly. But here's the thing. Here's the, here's the caveat. The nations come through the Messiah, Jesus. So in order to inherit the planet, see, the Jews recognize that they were promised Israel and that they will inherit the planet when the Messiah comes. Mm -hmm. They know that. Right. They're waiting for the Messiah. Okay, and the Messiah will set up in Israel and rule the world. They believe the same things, kind of. We're, we know that Jesus Christ is seated in heavenly places and all nations, he's a Jew, by the way, all nations belong to him now. Okay. So we are lying to the Jewish people that God's inheritance for them is the land of Israel. This is what it's like. It's like all the Christians be like, we get the whole planet, but let's just tell the Jews, they just get Jerusalem. They just get Israel. And but and, and here's the thing. And people don't even mean it badly. They don't mean it. They don't mean it that way. They think that they're doing the right thing. But they, they think don't that know that that's what they believe. Exactly. That that is the essence of what you believe. If you're going to witness to a Jew, you tell them about the Messiah. The Messiah has come. And if they believe in the Messiah and they confess their sins, they can enter into the kingdom of God now and rule and reign now over the planet. The now, whole thing. Now, the whole thing. We are still believing for Messiah, just like they're believing for Messiah in the, in the new, in the, in the end times theology. We aren't, you aren't, the theory is. And when, you know, in the, in the Middle East right now, there's no peace. Why isn't there peace? Because of end times theology of Christians. Uh-oh. We are causing these Middle East wars. Our fake, false, it is, it is a, 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 it's called a doctrine of demons, has caused more death and more destruction 
and more rifts between the Arabs and the Jews. So here's here's the deal, and I can, want you can to can I finish my thought? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, than anything in the world. You see, Arabs and Jews, and Muslims and Jews and Christians, they lived in Palestine, Palestine, Palestine. Okay, it wasn't until Christians constant pushing to get the Jews into Israel. Mm -hmm. And and you know what the Lord spoke to me? How dare you say that I love the Jews more than the Muslims? Wow. We have all these kind of crazy thoughts that Mohammed, who was 600 years after Jesus, is somehow some sort of direct descendant of Esau. Okay? And that all Muslims are somehow Esau because Muslims went and conquered Christian lands, by the way. And somehow it's biblical prophecy that the children of Esau and the children of Abraham and, you know, the Israelites, they're just going to fight. There's nothing we can do about it. No, Mohammed can't trace his lineage back to Esau. Okay. And all the Muslims are, there's all mixed races in there. They're not all the descendants of Esau. You have made that up. It's a cult. And it's a cult of division. It's a cult of, of, of child sacrifice. I don't know what it is, but it's evil. And the Lord said to me tonight, as we speak this forth, mm -mm. we are going to call the children of Esau, the children of Israel, the children of all tribes, of all people, of all time, to come together, to love one another, to see that we serve one king, Jesus. And we cannot say that our God has this one perfect plan for these particular ethnic people. And they're more special. That's wrong. It's racist. And you have to wonder why the Muslim, Muslims are coming to know Jesus, despite your end times theology. Because you're telling them, you're spitting in their face. You're the sons of Esau. You're going to fight those Jews. You're always going to be terrorists. You're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be. It's hateful. It's wrong. It's evil. God has a plan for all Arabs, Muslims, Jews, regardless of your race, regardless of your ethnicity. He has a plan for all, everybody. And you know, he really wants to bring together. And you know what's, this is going to set people free. Muslims and Jews. I am going to see through this revelation red pill. Muslims and Jews loving each other through Jesus. And y'all can sit over here and take your fake theology and your fake end times theology and your fake Messiah because Jesus already came. I have a Messiah. And you can go down and play with Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo and create all kinds of tension and wars. Or you can get off your butts and start preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God that is at hand right now. And you can spread it to, it's the same message that goes to the Arabs, the same message that goes to Saudi Arabia, the same message that goes to Israel. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody is above anybody else and nobody is more special and more called by God than anybody else. The only caveat to that is, and we've said this on in this series before, so you guys should, should start having these kind of memorized. That when it talks about us being grafted in, 
it says that they are part of the original tree, the original olive tree. And it's, and, but they're broken off. Remember the covenant was broken. Okay. They're broken off just like we're not part of it. So they have to be grafted back in as well. But they're, it says that it's easier. It's much easier to bring them, Jews to Jesus because they already know. Because the, they were part, they were once part of the, the tree. Messiah. Yeah. It's kind of like a branch breaks off. It's easier to put that thing back mm -hmm. on than it is to get a branch from a, a, a pear tree and graft it into an apple tree. Right? It's just easier uh, for them because they were once part of that tree. So that's the only caveat to the statement you just made. Right. So you got this blog up. I'm going to start in a different place than I, I, I was going to start with um, the, in the, in the, description Lankusa. We're going to get to Lankusa in a moment. He was a um, Catholic Jesuit who wrote a book basically on this theology of separating the Jews from the, the church. And then I found this amazing Dr. Thesis. I can't ever say it. Thesis. Um, by and you can take this and put Michael it. Newark. Newark. Yeah, I don't, I don't want you to just kind of keep it up and like have it, everybody read together. Um but you can put it in the chat for okay. now. Okay. The P it's a PDF. Yeah. President Harry Truman. What do you mean, he corrected them, help create I am Cyrus. I am Cyrus. Be careful with calling Donald Trump Cyrus. Uh-oh. Every president gets this idea that they're Cyrus. Okay. Our modern world faces many challenges that are complex, threatening, and give us anxiety about the future. <clears throat> However, one conflict surpasses them all in its current expression and potential escalation, a conflict that seems intractable and unsolvable. Its hostility and scale of violence have escalated exponentially for six decades. Since May 15, 1948, the day after David Ben-Gurion proclaimed the modern state of Israel and the day that modern Israel was recognized by Harry Truman, the region has been engulfed in nonstop war, only briefly interrupted by occasional periods of uneasy hostile peace, punctuated by suicide bombers and tank-led incursions. More than 50 years earlier in 1891, American Christian Zionist William Blackstone had urged President Benjamin Harrison to support the establishment of a modern state of Israel, but Harrison declined. Although Truman's 1948 State Department argued against supporting modern Israel, Truman initially agreed. He ended up accommodating the political momentum of his time and went against Secretary of State George C. Marshall. Later on, he would declare himself the modern-day Cyrus, a new restorer of Israel. Since then, through 2005, the United States has given a culminative total of $154 billion. Now we know it's, 54, it's $40 billion a year to direct economic and military aid in Israel. The amount ra raised by American Christian Zionists in indirect aid is difficult to estimate, but it could be imagined by considering one Christian Zionist organization, the Chicago-based International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, which raised over $250 million from 1995 to 2005. But what if the Christian Zionists are wrong? What if their beliefs concerning what the Bible says about the land of Israel and the Jews in history and the events during the end of modern history? Shouldn't we seriously look at the underlying biblical arguments before we lobby secular governments for the support of modern Israel. I've got up a YouTube, and I'm not sure I really want to start with this, but I am, and I don't want you guys to go anywhere, and I'm not putting down John Hagee, but I just want you guys to get an idea of what we're talking about. As we go backwards, I want you to see where we are kind of in modern history. I, I used to listen to John Hagee all the time. Red. Red, buddy. No more chickens for you. No more chickens. It would be... Uh, For Christians to sit by silently, letting all this go on, and not do some serious research into where it came from, just you got to at least research with me tonight. 
Come on. Let me make sure that we're small enough so that when we make this big, they can see it really well. John Hagee is one of the really big Zionist pushes, pushers in Christian, the Christian world today. And he has been since I was a kid. Here, let me, let's fast forward just a little bit. Oh, here it comes. No, this today I'm talking to you about the final dictator, the rise of the Antichrist. Soon there will arise out of Europe a man who will walk onto the stage of history as a maker of peace, a superstar. And that is Reverend John Hagee describing the Antichrist. This controversial televangelist and megachurch pastor is a favorite of Jewish groups because of his support for Israel. But Hagee's Jewish supporters might be surprised by some of the things he says about Jews and Judaism. Of Satan who was Lucifer, who said, I will arise and ascend to the hill of God. I will be like the most high God. I will replace God. This phrase that I'm using in scripture, the God of his fathers, is a phrase in scripture used solely to identify the Jewish people. It suggests that this man is at least going to be partially Jewish, as was Adolf Hitler, as was Karl Marx. He will not regard the desire of women. That means he's going to be homosexual. Hitler, of course, was not Jewish. Much of what Hagee says about Jews reveals ignorance to the point of disrespect. It matters what Hagee says because he heads Christians United for Israel, representing hundreds of thousands of Christians. In this sermon, when Hagee talks about Jesus' Jewish youth, he reveals a lack of knowledge about Jews of that era. The life of Jesus Christ was a father-centered life. At his bar mitzvah, at the age of 13, he said to his mother, Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? Doing his ministry, he said, He that has seen me has seen the father. When he knelt by the blind man, and he mixed spittle with dust in his hand. Why did he do that? He did that because the Jewish people believed that in the spittle of every firstborn child, male child, was healing power. And he spit into his hands and made mud out of it and put it into the eyes of the blind person. What was he saying to every Jewish person who saw that? They said he is the firstborn of his father. There is no known Jewish custom where Jews regard as special the spittle of firstborn sons. And there was no such thing as a bar mitzvah in Jesus' time. Jews did not have that ceremony until the 1300s. In consideration of his special relationship with Jewish organizations, Pastor John Hagee has promised not to try to convert Jews. He recently published a book arguing that the Jews never had a chance to reject Jesus. Since Jesus refused by word and deed to claim to be the Messiah, how can the Jews be blamed for rejecting what was never offered? Read it in this shocking expose in defense of Israel. In 2006, in an interview on Fresh Air, Hagee said that Jews would need to convert to Christianity. And he depicted Jews as Jesus' executioners. Host Terry Gross asked Hagee twice about whether only Christians would go to heaven in the rapture. Well, there, there, there are Jewish people who believe in Jesus Christ, and there are, there are Arabs who believe in Jesus Christ. So you don't have to be a Gentile to be a believer. But you do have to believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, you do, to so, be a so, part of the rapture. So where does that leave the Israeli Jews who don't believe in Jesus Christ when the rapture comes? Where that leaves them is that during the tribulation, uh, the book of Revelation says in the 14th chapter that God is going to send 
angels who will preach the everlasting gospel across the face of the earth so that everyone will have the opportunity of knowing who Jesus Christ is. Now when it comes to the Jewish people, Zechariah very clearly says that they are not going to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah until they see him. Zechariah says in the 14th chapter, and when they, the Jewish people, see him whom they have pierced, and the word pierced there actually refers to his ribbon side, when they see him whom they have, whom they have pierced, they will weep as one weeps for his only son for a period of one week. They're simply not going to believe he is the Messiah until they actually see him, and that's at the second coming. Then Can at I that pause? point in time, mm -hmm. there yeah, is right there, because this is really important in the Revelation red pill that we're doing for you guys to understand. He's not trying to make Jews into Christians. Reader relevance, just for that scripture so that you can know when it talks about them seeing him whom they pierced. That was Jesus on the cross. Not Jews 2,000 years ago did not, 2,000 years in the future, did not crucify Jesus. Stop putting okay. that on them. Okay? Stop putting that on them. That is not what that, that scripture is, is anti -Semitic talking about. It's very anti-Semitic. To say that Jews today are going to look upon Jesus. They didn't Whom crucify they him. pierced. They didn't crucify They didn't crucify Jesus. It says that the father, the, the sins of the fathers do not are, go on the children. Okay. If, 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 if I, if, if, if my great, great, great grandfather murdered somebody, I'm, I'm supposed to take responsibility of that. I'm trying to think. It's like I, the whole, the whole just, of all Jews through the past 2000 years are going to look upon Jesus whom they crucified. No, I never, this goes back to, well, this goes to, um, Matthew 23. Yeah. It says upon this generation will come the judgment Okay, for this 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 whole scenario, what he just read right, right there has already been fulfilled. And they will look on him whom they have pierced. That has already happened. We're not waiting for that to happen a second time. I do not look at Germans today and go, "Wow, all you people that put Jews in concentration camps." And that was only a couple generations, even one generation. I mean, so anyway, I just wanted to point that out so that while we're listening to this kind of heretical stuff that's not biblical. Yeah, and very anti-Semitic. Try, try to understand that we're, we're playing this to show you how wrong it is. Um, don't be caught up in the lies. Judgment of the nations in which all nations are judged for the way in which they have treated the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are front and center in the kingdom of God that will be an eternal kingdom. The word pierce appears in chapter 13, 3 of the Hebrew Bible's book of Zechariah, not chapter 14, as Hagee says. The Oxford Annotated Bible states that Zechariah 13, 3 is about the fate of false prophets who will be denounced by their parents as imposters. Okay. So there's more to that. And you're right, there were... Somebody mentioned, am I, I'm, I'm conflating two, so Ishmael and Esau. So it was the, the children of Abraham, right, that would fight. But then Esau was also the Edomites, and they right. were constantly fighting the Israelites as well. Right. Thank you, Tracy, on Facebook. For yeah, for calling that out. Okay, so that's where we're at right now today. Okay, that's, that's modern. That's a little taste of where we're at today, where... The, the, the Jews will look upon him who they pierce. No, actually, that one day we'll get to Zechariah chapter 12, which is was beautifully fulfilled with Jesus. <laughs> Absolutely beautifully fulfilled. 
with Jesus. In my lifetime, John Hagee has done more to advance modern end times theory than, than anyone on the planet. Quite frankly, that in the Left Behind series. Yeah. And so the reason why we're calling him, not, not just calling him out, but showing you what he, what he was saying is there were several things that he was talking about that were wrong. Yeah. So, so if he's willing to lie and be wrong about, maybe he wasn't lying. Maybe he truly believed he, he had heard he the spit it. thing. Right? I think he the bar mitzvah. I think he's a sensationalist. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, just like Benny Hinn, I don't think he's a bad person. I just think you can be a sensationalist. And that's what we try not to do. There's a lot of people in our movement that are sensationalists, aren't there? And <clears throat> I'm not naming names tonight. So when John Hagee states that pastors are America's spiritual generals and calls for the president of the United States to bomb Iran because his reading of the Old Testament tells him that the Bible pred uh, predicts a... Um, this these wars between Israel and the Arabs that's we need to, to to investigate make sure that our Bible interpretations are correct and I think even Hege and and I do know that some people believe that all Jews will just be saved without really having to accept Jesus that all Jews right. will eventually just accept well Jesus. and 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 it makes sense though because of the way that he presents that is that once they see him and he's come then of course you would accept him mm -hmm. if they're gonna just if if the Jews don't come to Jesus until he just comes and then boom you've seen it and then of course you're gonna believe it so I don't love you Paul, so the rapture so according so Paul, to them the rapture happens happens yeah Seven years of tribulation, none of them come to Christ during that seven-year period. Yeah. And then when Jesus actually comes a third time for the third coming, for those of you that are following this, there's three, okay? When he comes for the third time, then they actually believe it. Yeah, it's not biblical. None of this makes it's any none sense. None of it makes any sense. All right, so um, I'm going to move on here. So let's go to the European history of Christian Zionism. And we're going to... I, my chairs way over here because the dog dog at my feet and then move on to the more in-depth look at the development of the united states then we're gonna kind of go i'm gonna go into ci schofield and a little bit more with the, the plymouth brethren and, and john darby here in a second so interestingly the protestant reformation was the beginning point for christian zionism zionism in European Protestant churches, people were hearing, hearing the Bible preached in their native tongues. Protestant ministers like John Calvin in Geneva advocated for the common person to be educated enough to read the scriptures. The Reformation ushered in a new period in which the Bible was now taught not from a, a moral standpoint or an alleg allegorical standpoint, but from a literal and historical perspective. The Reformation principle of scripture interpreting scripture meant that there uh, expositional preaching taught the whole counsel of God, including the history of the Jewish people and the covenantal aspects of blessings and curses for loyalty and obedience. Now, things went sideways with Romans chapter 11. Whereas for centuries, the Roman Catholic Church has interpreted Israel in Romans 11, and if you could go ahead and bring that up, let's just go over Romans 11, um, 25 uh, and 26. Let me just start. Did God, I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Did God not reject his people whom he foreknew? Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and have torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was the God, God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Which, uh, what do you want me to have this on? In Ivy. So too, at the present time, I'm at verse five, there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
And if by grace, then it can't be based by works. If it were grace, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear. To this very day, David says, I'm going to read verse 9. May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. I was going to ask you, keep reading. Okay, oh. Verse 11. Just keep reading. Okay. Yeah. All right. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, when the whole batch is, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith do not be arrogant but tremble for if god did not spare the natural branches he will not spare you either consider therefore the kindness and sternness of god sternness to those who fell but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness otherwise you also will be cut off and if they do not persist in unbelief they will be grafted in for god is able to graft them in again after all if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree how much more readily will these the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that uh, you may be, not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the number, full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as the election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Just as you were once, were at one time disobedient to God. What this, what people don't understand is there's a scripture that says they are not all Israel. Or they are not all Jews. Is it not, they are not all Jews, but inwardly. Yeah. Understanding that at, um, he is not a Jew that is one outward for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is of the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. Their circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. Romans chapter two. You can misinterpret an, a passage and base an entire theology upon a passage that was misinterpreted and then cause a lot of trouble. You see, for centuries, the Roman Catholic Church had interpreted Israel in Romans 11, 25 through 26 to mean the church, including the Jewish and Gentile believers. The reformers that followed Luther and Calvin tended to see this passage as referring to unconverted Jews. We see evidence of this view in later editions of the Geneva Study Bible, wherein a note in Romans 11 defines Israel as the nation of Jews, and later it was strengthened to mean the future conversion 
of the Jewish nation to Christ. This significantly changed the interpretation of Romans 9 through 11 and laid the groundwork for a view of Israel quite unlike that taught in the Western church in preceding centuries. It wasn't long after this that some of the Puritans led by Thomas Brightman started to advocate the rebirth of a Christian Israelite nation. By the early 1600s, the sentiment gained favor within the political class in England. In 1621, an influential member of Parliament in Cambridge, contemporary to Brightman, Sir Henry Finch, wrote a book entitled The World's Great Restoration or the Calling of the Jews and of All the Nations in the Kings of the Earth to the Faith of Christ. That would be one of my YouTube or video titles that Michelle and you, and Rumble will not allow what me to put in there. What she means is that was a really long title. You got to put ones. a whole, you got to put it all in there in the title. They did that. I love them. They're like me. So Finch called for the restoration of the Jews to the promised land and urged them to reestablish their claim to the land and to convert to Christianity. At the time, Finch and others did not contemplate any reconstruction of the temple, the reestablishment of the sacrifices or a theocratic kingdom. They wanted them to come to Christ and return to the land. Not all Englishmen shared Finch's enthusiasm for the restoration of the Jews to Palestine, including King James, who for forced him to disavow much of what he had written. Nonetheless, the idea grew significantly with the rise of post-millennialism. That's what we've been discussing in, um, in our talk in the Puritan circles about how we're coming out of the thousand-year reign. We're in the thousand-year reign right now, and Christ has already, is already building his kingdom, the kingdom of the mustard seed. Nonetheless, the idea grew significantly Okay, in Puritan circles. And since American Puritanism was largely drawn from England, this idea also made its way to America. Now, this is going to be interesting. You're going to learn something. Okay. One American Puritan father, Increase Mather, father of Cotton Mather, was a prolific author and key proponent of the return of Jews to Palestine. His support of the national restoration of Israel to her land in the future was typical of the American colonial Puritans. The first uh, salient school of thought in American history that advocated a national restoration of the Jews to Palestine was resident in the first native-born gener generation right after the Pilgrims in the, in the early 1700s, or seven, 16, in the 16, late 1600s and then the 17th century, in which Increase Mather played a dominant role. You guys know his name from at least history in school. The men who held this view were Puritans from that time on the doctrine of restoration. So Zionism was called restoration. And I'd like to refer to it as restoration, just because I feel like that is a better term. I don't like where Zionism has gone, just in the word. But, get this, while Increase Mather wrote and taught that the Jews needed to return to their ancient homeland, his historian son, his historian son who studied history, Cotton Mather, departed from the views of his father. In a small work called Triparadisis, he presented a, uh, a, an argument for Romans 11 that comes to the conclusion that the end of the Jewish age was fulfilled in AD 70 with the fall of Jerusalem. Oh, wow. Boom. Boom. Cotton's difficulty with his father's view of the reestablishment of ancient Israel was its favoritism of a nation and a race that contradicted the New Testament expansion of the gospel to all nations, to all tribes, into all tongues. To Cotton, elevating any nation over another was very derogatory to the glory of God and very contradictory to the language of the gospel. It goes back to these people are special. And God specifically wanted to show us that we're all his kids. And he wants us all to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Despite Cotton's change of mind on the matter, the clearly popular view in America was that of his father. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the emerging view of the conversion of the Jews as a nation gave way to a much different view of Israel and the church. The beginning of the end of optimism. So this post-millennial idea of we're expanding the kingdom was awesome. It declined in favor after the late 18th century American and French revolutions and the uh, Napoleon Wars in the early part of the 19th century. The world didn't seem to be improving. Quite the contrary. The affairs of men seemed to be getting worse. And every time, as we learned last week, things got worse. Out came the millennialists who were saying Jesus is coming back because it's so bad. Every single time. In Earl, as early as 1808, tracts and printed sermons began to appear saying that Napoleon was the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Now, Michelle? The beast, or were, all three. Were they, were they correct? Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm pretty sure Napoleon's gone now. Probably dead. Um, I, and here's the thing. If they were right, mm -hmm. we're through the tribulation, man. We're done. It's good so news. it urged clergy to warn their flocks to prepare for Armageddon and the coming of the Lord. Same thing. I, 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 every time I think to myself, you guys are going to learn, but I don't know. Not you guys. If you're watching, you're learning. The coming of Jesus draws near the day of the Lord hastens greatly to possess the cor correct apprehension of the import of, the, of events infallibly indicative uh, of the great proximity of Messiah's advent, candor, vid uh, vigilance, prayerfulness. You get it. It's com He's coming. All right. Christians are supposed to proclaim the good news, but the titles of these tracts and books are bad news. They became more dramatic. And the, and the drawing of the attention was to the Negative. new bad news. No fewer than 50 books on the subject of the Jews' return to Palestine were published between 1796 and the end of the century. The flood of the words that, became, that, became, that become a raging torrent with the Pope's exile from Rome by Napoleon in 1797, which, for those with eyes to see it, was a, a prophetic Rosetta Stone and a sure sign of the approaching end times. In 1800, when Napoleon's foray into the Middle East remained unchecked, a Scottish magazine reported on prophetically raised expectations. It's rumored. Can you do a Scottish accent for me? No. It's rumored that, the pro that, that he proposes to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and reestablish the Jews' hierarchy and government in all their ancient splendor in the Holy Land, to which he will invite the people, the Jews, from all their nations of the world, among whom they were scattered. That was really good. It was really bad. That was we'll so good. You know what? is really hard. But that was in 1800, and they're like, oh my gosh, they're going to rebuild the temple. Yeah. That was 223 years ago. Come on. Of course, was there have been so long to rebuild that big consistent temple. speculations concerning the identity of the Antichrist and the beast throughout um, the centuries. There was a man in England. Mm. Feels kind of bad for him, but he's he. A lot of these people. What the, I always want the angle of a, the nefarious banker, and we're going to get to some bad guys. But a lot of these people just believe what they believed. Right. Okay. So Lewis Way was a young lawyer and a graduate of Oxford who happened to inherit 300,000 pounds. That was, that was a lot of money in 1811. He studied ancient Hebrew and also the unfortunate history of the Jews since their expulsion from England in 1290, although Cromwell allowed them back to in. You know, Christians have been wrongfully persecuting Jews for centuries. Because they that. keep thinking, you crucified Jesus. That's true. That's Way where that comes ancient. from. That's where that comes from. They're just regular people like everybody else, okay? Um, okay, so... Uh, do I really need that? Okay. Okay, sorry. Okay, so there's this guy, and he was trying to get re repatriate way. 
repatriate guys back, the Jews back to Israel. Even Tsar Alexander of Russia in 1817, he, this guy, um, uh, tried to get the Tsar of Russia to be like, hey, let's get the Jews back to Palestine. In the late uh, 1820s, uh, Louis Way was bu was busily shuttling around Europe and Palestine in an attempt to gather political momentum for the return of the Jews. A dynamic Scottish minister was enthralling crowds, and here begins, here begins, here it comes, where it really takes off. And a very dynamic Scottish minister by the name of Edward Irving. Irving. He held a pre-millennial futurist view of the end times. But unlike Brightman's, he, his was largely pessimistic. His sermons and dramatic writings were drawing large crowds. He got like 10,000 people to come. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He spoke in tongues. They had times of prayer and prophesying. But he read a book by a man named Emmanuel Marcuse. And this we can pick up with my blog, if I can find it, my own blog. Right okay, so, all right. In 1548, the Catholic Church convened one of its most famous councils in history, which took place in the north of Rome in a city called Trent. One of the main purposes of this council was for the Catholics to plan a counterattack against Martin Luther and the Protestants. This warfare only confirmed in the minds of Protestants the conviction that Papal Rome was indeed the beast, which would make a war with the saints. Therefore, a new tactic was needed, something less obvious. And this is where the Jesuits come in. In 1534, Ignatius uh, Loyola founded a secret Catholic order called the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits. The Jesuits. The Jesuits. Uh, the Jesuit priests have been known throughout history as a pretty wicked arm of the Roman Catholic Church. So there was one from, uh, had a doctor of theology from Spain who said, here I am, send me. It was a man named Francisco Ribera. Ribera published a commentary on Revelation as a counterinterpretation to the prevailing view among Protestants, which identified the papacy with the Antichrist, and that's in the Geneva Bible Study Notes. Ribera applied all of, the, all of Revelation but the earliest chapters to the end time rather than the history of the church. The Antichrist would be one single evil person who would be received by Jesus and would rebuild Jerusalem. Now, this was not actually picked up by the Catholic Church. What's interesting is that the Protestants picked this up. Why would it be picked up by the Catholic Church? They, they weren't. They, the, Ribera was trying to come up with a, a, something that would counter the Protestant view that the Catholic Church was the Antichrist. Okay. So he put it all into the future. I get you, I get you. And the Catholic Church didn't pick it up. Got you. He didn't pick up what the Jesuit was laying down. Okay. But somebody else picked it up. Okay? So almost 300 years after the Council of Trent, Jesuit futurism remained largely inside the realm of, like, kind of Catholicism... And the Jesuits. There was another guy, Emmanuel Marcuse. He built on Ribera's teachings. Spent much of his life writing a book called The Coming of the Messiah and the Glory of Majesty. Uh, like Kunza, however, wrote under the assumed name of Rabbi Ben Ezra. He was faking being a Jew. So here he was trying to convince Protestants. Right here, right here. He was a converted Jew. He was pretending to be a Jew who became a Christian. Yeah. Okay. What's going on? Are we out? Are we gone? Well, I just want to make sure. I'm trying to see which one it's trying to restart. Wait a minute. Let me, let me look at it one more time. Okay. Why don't you, um, well, I guess I you can't, can't see which one it's restarting. So just give me one second and let me double check and see where we're at. All right, we're on. It might be Cloud Hub that it's restarting. 
I need this blogger up on my computer. Here we go. All right. We're good. I got it. I don't need your computer anymore. You don't need me. I don't need you. Although your computer's way easier to read. It's so much bigger. Okay. So we're back at Lancusa. Now, this book is really kind of what, what sets uh, Edward Irving off. So Edward Irving gets a hold of this book by this 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 Jesuit priest who's pretending to be a converted Jew and it and it has this same kind of the same kind of teachings that the this new kind of teaching that there's two different um, plans of God for the church and for the Jewish people. All right. Edward Irving loves this book and spends basically his whole life translating this into into English. And he and and this becomes his um, his opus teaching. Okay. All right. So let's see. In the book titled Hidden Beast 2, there was a Spanish family living in Chile named the the uh, De Lincunzas in the year of our Lord, 1731. They had a baby boy. 15 years later, the lad was sent to Spain to become a Jesuit priest. 22 years later after that, in 1767, the Jesuits were expelled from Spain because of their brutality. The now father, Manuel de Lencuza, had to move. He moved to Imola, Italy, where he remained for the rest of his life. In Imola, he claimed to be a converted Jew under the alias of Rabbi Ben Ezra. He wrote the book, The Coming of the Messiah and the Glory of Majesty. In that book, he theorized that the church would be raptured, taken up to be with the Lord some 45 days before the real return of Jesus to the earth. This is a speculation. There were no scriptures to back this up. During that 45 days, while the church was in heaven with the Lord, God would judge the wicked still on earth. The last sentence shows shades of the pre-wrath doctrine of today, though that was put together during the 1990s. Lencuza wrote his manuscript in Spanish and was published in 1812 under his pseudonym, the, the Jewish name, Ben Ezra. By doing so, his book would be more easily accepted within Protestantism because no Protestant is going to read a book by a Catholic, especially a Jesuit. Okay? Lencuza emphasized a return of interpreting prophecy literally from a futurist viewpoint. He wrote of a future Antichrist and a 1,260-day 1, literal days tribulation, events just preceding the coming of the Lord. He wrote in opposition of the day-year theory of the, those, the historists we talked about last week, 1,260 days equals 1,260 years, and they thought that they were entering um, into the next phase of the world. He did not promote a pre-tribulation rapture of the saints. At the future time of the Antichrist, his rapture of the saints occurred 45 days before the end of Daniel's 70th week, probably an influence from Berbera. Lancusa's book would have a dramatic influence on Edward Irving in formation of his pre-tribulation doctrine. So this development of this pre-millennialism in the 19th century. Now, let me explain something to you guys who say the rapture's been around, the rapture idea has been around for years, pre-millennium has been around for years. This idea of Modern end times theology and theory is completely brand new. Yes, there have been people who, who have read Revelation and said there will be a thousand year reign and then the judgment. Okay, people have read that. But nobody has ever said that there's going to be some sort of, nobody has ever come up with an idea. It's an idea that's not in the Bible that there'll be some sort of rapture before that. Nobody's put that together. But where did they put the taking away from uh, 2 Thessalonians 4? Was that at the end? 
No, they they that was a meeting up to be with the Lord. It has nothing to do with the end times, really. Well, it has a lot the of resurrection of the using, dead. A lot of the resurrection of the dead as the rapture. That's mm -hmm. they've they've always believed in a rapture based on that scripture. The resurrection of the dead. It's been used in the history by premillennialists as the resurrection of the righteous and then the wicked. It's in Revelation. It's very simple. They put those two together. But it's not. It's never been put together as a we get taken away. Right. The, the righteous get taken away, and then there's seven years of no, tribulation. No, because in the book of Revelation, if you're going to use it that way, um, the 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 taking up of the away, the resurrection of the righteous happens right before the thousand-year reign. So there's no seven-year tribulation there at all. There's no seven-year tribulation in the Bible, period. Okay, so having accepted the call in 1822 to pastor the Church of Scotland uh, at the Canada... Caledonian Chapel, Irving soon became popular, if controversial, so much so that the chapel proved too small for the large numbers who wanted to hear him. Given his growing popularity, Irving was invited to preach at the annual service of the London Missionary Society in 1824, and a year later in 1825 at the Continental Society, in which Henry Drummond was already influential. Irving's address on that occasion was provocatively entitled, Babylon and Infidelity Foredoomed. We're headed down a very bad, dark path. In it, Irving advanced the assertion that the church, far from being on the threshold of a new era of blessing, was about to enter a series of thick coming judgments and fearful perplexities right before Jesus' advent and reign. Irving published the address acknowledging in the foreword his indebtedness to Hatley uh, Fury, an influential layman who held premillennialist views. In 1828, Irving uh, confidently wrote to Thomas uh, Chalmers, who had been, just been appointed professor of divinity at Edinburgh to ask whether he might be examined for a doctorate of divinity, as well as further opportunity to preach in Edinburgh. The second company of our Lord is Point de Vieux, the vantage ground, as one of my friends is uh, wont to word it, from which and from which alone the whole purpose of God can be contemplated and understood. This is where it takes a really dark turn. Because there's no... You just need to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. The kingdom of God is at hand. We raise his king, kings and priests. Having Jesus come back is not the vantage point where the whole gospel is understood. And that's where they take this. That's, that's, you can see how that's the path that went down a wrong place. Okay. In 1826, Irving was introduced to the views of Lancusa and his book. He was so excited. That's the Jesuit that faked being a Jew. By his speculations, uh, he mastered Spanish in order to translate and publish the work into English. Irving added a 203-page preference to the translation in which he presented with great conviction his own unique prophetic speculations about the end of the world, predicting the apostasy of Christendom, the subsequent restoration of the Jews, and finally the, finally the imminent return of Christ. You want to read that? When the Lord shall have finished the taking of witness against the Gentiles, he will begin to prepare another ark of testimony, and to that end will turn his Holy Spirit unto his ancient people, the Jews, and bring them unto those days of refreshing. This outpouring of the Spirit is known in Scripture by the latter rain. These three points of doctrine concerning the Gentile church, the future of Jewish and universal church, and the personal advent of the Lord to destroy the one and to build up the other, I opened and defended out of the Scriptures. From Sabbath to Sabbath, with all boldness, yet with fear and trembling. At that time, I did not know of one brother in ministry who held with me in these matters. Say that one more time. I didn't know anybody that was agreeing with what I was saying. 
And of those to whom I broke the subject, I could not get the ear, even for preliminaries. So novel and so strange a doctrine, such uncivil and implacable language concerning overwhelming judgments upon the very eve of the millennial blessedness, such low and derogatory of the risen and exalted Savior as that he should ever again come to visit earth and be visibly present in it for any length of time, could not fail and certainly did not fail to call down upon my head all possibly forms and degrees of angry and intemperate abuse. But the more I examined... What's very interesting is that now that we are coming to say the opposite... This is all bogus, what he came up with. People come to us and say we're heretics. Like 200 years later. Isn't that so strange? That nobody had ever said what he was saying. And it was so crazy they wouldn't even let him talk to start off with. And now everybody believes it. Go ahead. Um, but the more I examined, the, the more, more I was, I was convicted and re- convinced and resolved that though alone and single-handed to maintain these three great hands of doctrine from heads. the whole, heads of do- doctrine from the Holy Scriptures against all who should undertake to uphold the commonly received notion that the present Gentile dispensation was about to burst forth with the millennial blessedness after which to wind up and consume all the Lord would come in the latter end. So in 1828, Irving wrote a work of over 500 pages titled The Last Days, a discourse on the evil character of these are times, proving them to be the perilous times and the last days. Very long title again. The first chapter is entitled Introductory to Prove that the Last Times and the Last Days of Holy Scripture are the conclusion of the Jewish captivity and the Gentile dispersion. Irving was clearly convinced that the Lord would return his his generation. I conclude, therefore, that the last days will begin to run from the time of God's appearing for his ancient people and gathering them together to the work of destroying all anti-Christian nations, of evangelizing the world, and of governing it during the millennium. The times and fullness of the times so often mentioned in the New Testament I consider as referring to the great period numbered by times. Now, if this reasoning be correct, as there can be little doubt that the 1,260 days concluded in the year of 1792 and the 30 additional days in the year 1823, we are already entered upon the last days and the ordinary life of a man will carry many of us to the end of them. If this be so, it gives to the subject with which we have introduced this year's ministry a very great importance indeed. Pause right there. Those are random numbers made up. He totally made them up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They obviously weren't true. (laughs) And that's the, that's like the basis of modern and time theology right there, Martin. First of all, I want to talk about the Antichrist very quickly. You know, before we were Revelation Red Pelled fully, every time I heard about the Antichrist, I, vi- I envisioned one person. Every time I read about Antichrist in the Bible... It says now there are many Antichrists. It says there are many Antichrists, and it always really confused me. Did that confuse anybody else? I mean, are, did anybody else find that themselves? Like, this is kind of like... The, I wonder what... And you're kind of confused. Like, I wonder what that means. And it's never written as in, now there are many Antichrists, but about 2,000 years in the future, there will just be one. And then to address these days that he's come up with, he's... he's he, these are so random... And he was convinced that they were living in it. It's past now, and yet his teachings have remained in, almost in, into perpetuity. That any that anyone that ever reads this idea 
that it applies to you. Unlike how Lindsay and later dispensationalists, Irving believed the reference to Gog in Ezekiel 38 to be a confederacy of all the nations of the East, which are left from the destruction of the Roman apostasy, which precedes this great congregation of nations against Jerusalem spoken of in the prophets. Now, here is where it gets really interesting and how it begins to spread. They begin to have these um, Bible camps. They were called prophetic conferences. And you and I think prophetic conferences, people are getting together and they're prophesying. Their prophetic conferences were getting together and they were talking about like what's happening right now and how Jesus is going to come back. Okay. So Irving's uh, premillennial and prophetic views concerning Israel came to have a profound influence over many Christian leaders and politicians like John Darby, the founder of the Plymouth Brethren and Henry Drummond. This was about the mid to eight er, in, in the early 18 to mid 1800s. There was a, he, uh, Drummond was a city banker and politician, later founded the Catholic Apostolic Church. On the first day of Advent in 1826, the same year Irving was translating uh, Lancunza's work, Drummond opened his home, and here's the first. You're going to remember these. There's going to be the Albury Conferences, the Powers Court, Court Conferences, and the Niagara Conferences here in the United States. Okay, so first is Albury. Write this down. To select group of some 20 invited guests to discuss matters of prophecy. Okay. These new ideas that include uh, the Reverend Lewis Way, who we just spoke of, who had the $300,000. This is where, this is how the British Zionism is coming together. They're like, we've got to do this. These are prophetic words and they're getting the spirit. We've got to do this. We've got to get the Jews, the Jews, and Jesus is going to come back and we got to get the Jews to Israel for Jesus to come back. And this is how this is going. This is this British. And then it goes to America. This, this, this Zionistic restoration fervor is coming out of some Jesuits book. Who Some pretended, Jesuit who pretended to be a Jew. A converted Jew. A Messianic converted Jew. To get all eyes off of the Catholic Church. As the Antichrist. Okay. So, you can lead people astray. You really can. So, you've got uh, the Reverend Lewis Way, who we just spoke about a little bit ago, who, had, who was trying to get, you know, the Jews back to Palestine. He helped fund, and here's the big thing. The London Society for the Promotion of Christianity Among the Jews, or the London Jew Society. The London Jew Society... Later on, we're going to get to the Balfour Declaration. They were started to push this fervency. It's called this Zionific, Zionistic fervency. These people were coming to know Jesus. And they were so excited. And they're like, Jesus, come back. Jesus, come back. We got to get the Jews to Israel. We got to get the Jews to Palestine. We got to get the Jews to Israel. We got to get the Jews to Palestine. And this was this, it was like a, it was an addiction. It was a fervor. It was a frenzy. It was insane. Okay. Um, along with Joseph Frey. Uh, also present was Hugh McNeil, another Anglican who in 1830 published a book called, entitled The Prophecies Relative to the Jewish Nation from the Albury Rectory. In this book, McNeil made frequent references to dispensations and the future national preeminence of Israel. Some 20 men attended the first conference and in the region of 40 attended one or more held at Albury. The, the majority were like Lewis uh, Way and Hugh uh, McNeil were Anglicans. Some were Moravians, some were Church of Scotland, nonconformists. Okay, Irving was to write at the first conference. The six days we spent under the holy hospital and hospitable roof of the Alderbury House within the chime of the church bell and surrounded by the most picturesque and beautiful forms of nature of which I can say is this, that no council from that first which we convened at Jerusalem until this time seemed more governed and conducted and inspired by a spirit of holy communion. Similar premillennial prophetic conferences were held at Arbury each year until 1830 before proliferating apparently under the increases of John Nelson Darby. 
and other venues, including the Power Court, Powers Court conferences. So there was a woman named Ladies Powers Court. She was very wealthy. She was very much interested in this. She goes, well, I'll hold a conference. Her name was literally Ladies. Lady. Lady. Lady Powers Court. Oh, did she have a first name? Because you always say Lady Ladies Power Court, and it's very confusing to me. I say Lady Powers Court. You say Ladies? It's Powers Court. Okay, but you say Ladies Powers Court. No, it's okay. Lady Powers Court. Okay, just Lady Powers Court. Got yeah, it. yeah. All right, the Powers Court uh, conferences in Dublin held in the 1830s, and then to uh, New York in 1868, to London in 1873, Chicago in 1875, and culminating in the Bible Conference movement at the Niagara Conferences, and that's where you get Schofield meeting Darby, uh, Brooks, and a bunch of other people who sent it on to Dwight L. Moody, and then sent it on hot off the presses to the whole United States. Um, regular topics covered included speculation of the second coming. Both the, the method of Bible readings and the topics of the conferences strongly suggest that the gatherings were a result of John Nelson Darby's travels in the United States and the influence of the Plymouth Brethren. Though already dead for 50 years, Irving uh, is also attributed to have been the cause for a split at the uh, 1884 Niagara Conference, which would be known as the Rapture Rupture. I'm going to just slightly go over Margaret McDonald. Um, she was part of a lot of these home churches that were getting together, filled with the Holy Spirit. Was, she was a young girl. And it is, it is written down that, she, that it's declared that she discovered in the Bible what had never been seen before. Others, a rapture of the church members described as a pre-Antichrist or pre-trib event. Her words, one taken and the other left. And we discussed last week how that is not applied. Before the wicked Antichrist is to be revealed. She was a partial uh, rapturist, seeing only part of the church raptured, and the rest of the church left on the earth. The very special people would be raptured. Them, basically. When she wrote that the trial of the church is from the Antichrist, she meant the part of the church not included in her pre-trib rapture. Leading partial rapturists, including, uh, there's a bunch of other people who were partial rapturists. A September article in the Morning Watch in Irving Journal saw the Philadelphia church raptured before a period of great tribulation and the Laodicean church left on earth. Uh, Hubner's precious truths claim that Philadelphia was seen raptured before only the seventh vial and not before the great tribulation, even though the article writer added twice in the following pages that this period was indeed the great tribulation. In the previous June issue, the same writer had seen Philadelphia on earth until the final post-trip advent. In between these two issues, uh, writers had visited Margaret McDonald, who explained her new revelation, which was soon reflected on these pages, without even giving her credit. About the same time, there began the emergence of a new movement, which came to be known as the Plymouth Brethren. The Brother Movement had this beginning in Dublin in 1825, when a small group of earnest men, dissatisfied with the spiritu spiritually lethargic condition that prevailed in the Protestant church in Ireland, met for prayer and fellowship. Soon others joined the fellowship, and associated groups sprang up in various places. Though the movement had its beginning at Dublin, it, it was uh, Plymouth, England, that became the center for their vast literature outreach. Thus, the name Plymouth Brethren became attached. Although there was interest from the start in prophetic subjects, the center of interest was on the body of Christ as an organism and the spiritual unity of Christ in all believers. There's nothing wrong with that. In reaction to the deadness and the formalism of the organized church systems and the hierarchy there, a man by the name of John Nelson Darby, remember that name, was the leading spirit among the Plymouth Brethren from 1830 onward. He was from a prosperous Irish family. He was an educated as a lawyer, and he took honors at Dublin University. He became a minister, but later on he became very uh, dissatisfied with the hierarchy, and he wanted to start a different kind of church. So he joined these guys, and uh, Christians were meeting at the Lady Power Court 
Powers Courts for study of the Bible prophecy. Uh, many clergymen uh, attended. Quite a few followed Irving. The Irvinites came to the meetings obsessed with the ideas of the secret rapture and a future Antichrist. In uh, bitted from the Jesuit uh, book of Lancusa. John Nelson Darby and other brethren leaders were invited to these meetings and became participators in them. It was there he was introduced to the Jesuit teaching of the secret rapture and the futurist interpretation of prophecy, as well as the famous book by Rabbi Ben Ezra, or actually we talked about. Let's take a pause really quick just to regroup on and refresh people on the secret rapture. We have mentioned it last week. We kind of briefly talked about it here today, but I just, you know, when we talk about these people, again, they get upset with the rapture. No, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, whatever. When we're talking about the secret rapture. Well, I actually have a video that will explain it if you want to play it. it. Okay. So um, play for me minutes uh, 420 to 5 real quick. Biographer W.G. Turner notes about this time, between 1827 and 1828, Darby fell from his horse, and while convalescing in Dublin, he came into contact with a little band of original brethren. There was a concept that the early church, the pure church, disintegrated and was lost very quickly by the end of the second century. And it was only until the 19th century that certain people such as Thomas Campbell and Joseph Smith and J.N. Darby and of course uh, Jehovah's Witness founder um, Charles Taze Russell and others said, we are, I am, the one who has been called upon by God to raise up the true church for the latter days. They called themselves brethren. J.N. Darby came from Ireland. He became a part of their group and he and B.W. Newton worked together. And so dispensationalism uh, in the modern sense or in, in the sense it developed in the 19th century can be related directly to this uh, development of an ecclesiological understanding in Plymouth. Inspired by the genuine piety and zeal of the brethren, Darby made his official break with the Church of England. He began fellowshipping with the brethren, meeting in homes for prayer and the study of scriptures, and quickly became one of its leaders and staunchest advocates. As the movement grew, it came to be known as the Plymouth Brethren. Okay, you can pause that. Author and now former- go to 730. the Powers Court uh, meetings. His positions on the rapture especially came very soon after. Not only did Darby introduce a new hermeneutic, method of interpretation, and draw a sharp distinction between the church and Israel, for the first time, at least in popular form, Darby taught a pre-tribulation rapture. Dispensationalism teaches a secret rapture which was never taught before in history. And that secret rapture is based on a very distinct program for Israel as compared to the church. Even though Paul the Apostle says, that he has made Jew and Gentile one man. Uh, the dispensationalist says no, there will always be uh, the two-body approach uh, to uh, eschatology and to prophetic and biblical understanding. So it was really a lot of new issues that came up in the time of the 1830s, thereabouts, which were created by John Nelson Darby and some of his associates that generated this. As noted by Floyd Elmore in the Dictionary of Premillennial Theology, by his own testimony, Darby's dispensational premillennial eschatology was fully formed by 1833. In 1834, Darby wrote a letter to a friend and referred to the newly discovered pre-tribulation rapture theory, stating that the thoughts are new and the teaching new wine. Darby further understood that its newness wasn't simply in context to the Church of England, but to the entire 1800-year history of the Church. He encouraged his friend to be discreet and publicly somewhat vague about this new wine, stating, quote, it would not be well to have it so clear, unquote. During the next 15 years, things progressed nicely for the emerging movement. Books and tracts were everywhere, and a new teaching that would become known as dispensationalism was creating no little stir. 
new members were joining the Brethren, and their influence began to be felt outside the confines of the British Isles. In 1845, the first of what would become many schisms tore the Plymouth Brethren almost in half. The problem was in large part centered on Darby's dogmatism and the manner in which these new teachings began to overwhelm the central message of Christ and the cross. That he was passionate about the things he believed and taught was one thing, but the way he began to treat people who didn't fully accept those beliefs was something entirely different. As Dr. Vern Poitras observed, Darby's contribution may have started with zeal for Christ, but it ended with an indiscriminate rejection of everyone out of conformity with his ideas. These actions inferred that Darby was pretty much self-centered. He was really out of control, and he was kind of autocratic in his dealing with people within the religious or church setting. Echoing one Mr. Grant, the great Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon pens a stinging rebuke and analysis of Darby and the Brethren. This controversial feeling, often degenerating into something resembling regular quarrels, is the chronic condition of Plymouth Brethrenism. They are in a state of constant antagonism with the Bethesda party. When they have no one of the opposite party to quarrel with, they will disagree among themselves. Such as uh, higher church government and things of that sort. You have Darby ending up exercising virtually a papal authority. And it's ironic that he would, would do that, but he effectively cut off those who disagreed with him, and he arrogated to himself, really, papal authority over the lives of others and the spiritual lives of others. A good example of this trend towards exclusivity and spiritual pride can be seen in the way Darby treated the Reverend Dr. G.F. Pentecost. When Dr. Pentecost failed to grasp a point Darby was making during a lecture, Darby, in front of other ministers, scolded him with these words, I'm here to supply exposition, not brains. This contentious spirit reared its ugly head again with American evangelist D.L. Moody. Again, according to Darby biographer W.G. Turner, Darby categorically disliked and disapproved of Moody and his ministry. He even wrote a letter to his followers warning that Moody would cause a great increase of worldliness into the church. Again, citing Pastor Spurgeon, Mr. Darby is, to all intents and purposes, a thorough pope, though under a Protestant name. He will never admit that he is an error and therefore very naturally declines to argue with those who controvert the soundness of his views. Even more egregious was the way Darby treated George Mueller, the philanthropist whose work with the orphans and his life of faith and prayer are legendary even today. Darby had labeled another brethren pastor, B.W. Newton, a heretic, a term Darby would often use to mark people who disagreed with him. When Mueller received people who had been with Newton into his brethren fellowship in Bristol, Darby condemned and ultimately excommunicated Mueller for violating his principle of separation from evil. Known as the Bethesda Incident, this led to a split between Mueller and his followers, a group that became known as Open Brethren and Darby's, quote, exclusives. Author William Cox detailed the depth of this breach of Christian fellowship and charity, though attempts were made, most often by Mueller, to reconcile their relationship. These two former friends never saw each other again, and Darby continued to castigate Mueller until his death. Years later, Mueller, wrestling with the things he had been taught by Darby, noted, I am a constant reader of the Bible, and I soon found that what I was taught to believe did not always agree with what my Bible said. I came to see that I must either part company with John Darby or my precious Bible, and I chose to cling to my Bible and depart from Mr. Darby. Mueller makes the point, and I think makes the, the great point, that when somebody really gets to start studying the Bible on their own, 
they can never come up with dispensationalism. I've never run into anybody who has studied the Bible who has been able to manufacture the dispensational system. The dispensational system is something that is superimposed upon the Bible. And this is what happened to me. As I got the rudiments of dispensationalism through the late great planet Earth, as I started to read the Bible, I couldn't fit the actual particulars of dispensationalism into what I was reading in Scripture, and I rejected the system as a whole. Eventually, Darby's defense of not just dispensationalism, but an ever-growing body of new wine and deeper life revelations led him to conclude that only the brethren, and even more specifically, his particular sect of them, meet in Christ's name. The rest of the church was corrupt. We do not have time here to discuss all the things that splintered the movement. One okay. So I guess what I wanted to, and that was really good, and I'm glad that we watched that. All I really wanted you to expound upon was one more time, when we refer to the secret rapture, why is it that it that it doesn't fit? How is it an inserted thing in the timeline according to the Bible? Because it's just not in the Bible. It doesn't say that there's a taking away before um, anything that Jesus comes back. It's like this, everybody's just gone. Jesus doesn't show up. Nobody shows up. People are just gone. And no one ever has ever put that in church history. Because there's nowhere in the... So when we, when we talk about 2 Thessalonians 4... First, with first Thessalonians 4. Yeah. This taking, it's the only scripture really that they use I know. for the rapture. Right. They've got two of them. I forget what the other one is um, in, in Revelation. It, it's, it's an aloof passage, mm -hmm. kind of. It doesn't put it on any kind of timeline. So what John Nes Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren and all the people that we've been talking about here when we're talking about this secret rapture, that's why it's we refer to the actual second coming that everybody else knows of Jesus is actually a third coming because the second coming, according to them, would be happening at the rapture because according to Second Thessalonians, I feel four, like this is a really big idea for you guys. So you can bring this one up. Um, no pre no pre rapture first in First Thessalonians four. This is an this is the only proof text that is ever given for a direct support of rapture. The word caught up is. Harpazio in the Greek and is also used for when Paul was caught up in the third heaven to see visions in uh, 2 Corinthians 12 2. However, this verse simply teaches that all Christians have taught about the events of the second coming, namely resurrection of the dead, translation of the living into spirit beings, destruction of the earth, judgment in heaven and hell, all in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Now, I have a different view of even that. And I will bring that to you guys at another time. But this particular thing in that is the that is the that is a traditional teaching of how the church has taught it for years. Uh, there's no rapture in John five. It teaches the opposite. No rapture in Daniel twelve two. Um, they, they, it just uh, it's not there. Okay, there's no rapture. There's no rapture. Well, it's too small for them to see that. Anyway. Okay. All right. So I want to go back to. Um, the father of modern dispensationalism over here with the um, the, the doctor thesis. Darby Wizard, uh, I'm going to skip that. All right, we're going to get to, all right. Darby seemed to view Christian people as having no organized constituted place on earth. What is the church of Christ in its purpose and perfection? And our Lord has taught us to ascribe whatever is inconsistent with this to the hand of the enemy. It is a congregation of souls redeemed out of his, this naughty world by God manifest in the flesh, a people purified to himself by Christ, purified in the heart by faith, knit together by the bond of this common faith in him. To him their head sitting on the right hand of the Father, having consequently their conversation cometh wealth in heaven, from whence they look for the Savior, the Lord of glory. He doesn't actually, he discouraged uh, anybody to go and be part of any denomination. 
He didn't uh, find hope in the groups and other disillusioned believers. There's actually a book that I have been reading about the Plymouth Brother Refuted that basically says they are um, just, they would go into other denominations and pull people out and then say, just stay part of us. We're the only ones that know anything. And they would destroy Christian brotherhood. It was just not good. And I want to read a comment here from Sherry on Rumble. Not wanting it to be clear is a red flag. If something is the truth, you should want everyone to know it. Um, Odin Odinson, I'm glad that you're here, says that Salty Cracker wasn't on and they came across all us. And then they said, there's not so many people who don't know this stuff. I'm glad you, or there's, I, I know what you're trying to say. There's a lot of people that don't know this. I'm glad you're covering it. Yeah. So I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad Salty Cracker wasn't on and you found your way here. Yeah, in his view, an ordained priesthood manifests a denial of Christianity. He said, for a denominational body, there is no room in the scriptural account of the church. So no denominations, no nothing. And he critiques the Presbyterians. And it was under this that Darby Irving and the Powers Court Conference attendees came to be associated. By the second conference held in 1832, Darby pers persuaded most of the delegates at the conference, including Lady Powers Court, whom he actually had her fall in love with him and... I don't know if he's gay or what, but he didn't marry her. Uh, to leave the established church, she'll never really leave the established church and associate with the brethren. At the annual conferences, as well as in between with letters and meetings, the topics of discussion and correspondence surrounded questions concerning the return of the Jews to the land and by what covenant did this warrant come from. While intellectual questions of doctrine were of primary interest, other questions involved emotional and practical issues. How... How would the faithful remnant of believers adrift in a world of increasingly corrupted churches, declining kingdoms, increasing social depravity, and revolutions live on as uh, the chaos increased? It was at this point that Darby introduced the doctrine of the rapture. Far from being accepted, this doctrine caused a split in the brother community that lasted nearly 100 years. But for those fearful of increasing wars, famines, social unrest, and earthquakes, it brought relief. It was just put there. Because their doctrine, they realized that the way they were saying it's got to be this way because Jesus is going to come back. People got afraid. So they made up the secret rapture. But don't worry, you'll just be gone. Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. It should be noted that some have promoted the notion that Darby acquired this doctrine of the rapture about the time of 1830 from Margaret McDonald. But it really doesn't matter where it came from. But I really, but Darby really pushed it. And here's the good news. This should actually encourage you about people that actually studied the Bible, um, about the, the church. Most people that I come across these days that still hold to dispensationalism, they're like, they're done with the pre-trib rapture because yeah. they can't reconcile it with scripture. Right. Yeah. And so I think that to me is really encouraging that mm -hmm. at least these people at least are they reading think the they word. they got to go like, through the tribulation. Wait a minute. Actually, this, this secret rapture doesn't fit. Right. And, and so secret rapture equals pre-trib rapture. Okay. Right. Got it. All right. Let's go.